Well, this morning we complete our series, the book of Leviticus. And even though throughout this series I've tried to help us see the relevance of this ancient book, I would not blame you if you still feel like when you, when you move into Leviticus, oh, this feels so distant, this feels so different. Because as we said the first week that we were in Leviticus, Leviticus is a, a different book. I mean, it has a very different cultural context. Thousands of years ago to a very different people in a very different situation. Uh, we talked about that first week, how Leviticus has a very different, not just cultural context, but literary content. Like, it's a lot of law. And so for most of us, we don't speak legalese. We don't like to read legal contracts and such. And so walking in Leviticus feels very abrupt and challenging. But we also suggested that first week that Leviticus is challenging not only because of the cultural context, the literary content, but also because of the, the narrative connections that we often lose to the larger story. That is, what I mean is that Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, and it follows a book called Exodus, which is this huge underdog story in which God delivers his people from slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai and says, you're going to be a kingdom, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. He enters into a covenant with them, and he says, I'm going to draw near to you in the tabernacle. Now, at that point in the narrative arc of the story of the scriptures, and that's how the second book ends, that should give us momentum then to go with interest into the third book, namely Leviticus, because the people of God then are facing the same problem that, that we face. Namely, how are these people in the book of Exodus? They're unholy. Like you see a countless examples of it in the book of Exodus. How, are, how is a holy God going to dwell among them? Like that's, that's a pretty big ask there. And the answer to that question is the, is the book of Leviticus. And we've seen throughout the book of Leviticus that, that the ultimate answer is not just in the book of Leviticus, but ultimately for us it's in Jesus. And we talked about how in the book of Hebrews, so often that author helps us fill in the blanks between Leviticus and today, helps us see how Jesus is the one who helps us to dwell and enables us to dwell, though unholy, in the presence of a holy God. For example, in Hebrews 10, the author says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what was happening in Leviticus, that was fine for then. God, God commanded that. But it's ultimately impossible. And then he follows up and says, for by one sacrifice, namely Jesus, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so we've tried to make these connections to help us see how Leviticus is still relevant for us today, how it points forward to Jesus. So with that overview of Leviticus, we come now to our last sermon on the book of Leviticus. But here again, we run into some details that might feel very foreign to our modern ears. And so in the text this morning, we're going to see pretty Two, con two stark contrasts. There's going to be a section of blessing, and there's going to be a section of, of punishment, which is how ancient treaties would end. Like, that's just what they did. And so there's a lot here that's very specific to the Israelites for that time, for that place. And so we'll have to walk through that and navigate how we apply it today. But the text begins, Leviticus 26, it begins with a stunning reminder that is applicable no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what time it is. So Leviticus 26, we're going to walk through the chapter. If you want to look in, in the Bible in front of you, I invite you to. We're going to cover a lot of text. We're not going to read all of it, so it would behoove you to have it in front of you. Leviticus 26, we're going to, again, we're going to begin with a stunning reminder to us all. There are things in Leviticus 26 that we need to contextualize and think about how this applies today. But what Leviticus 26 begins with is unbelievably applicable and needs very little translation to help see the relevance for us today. So Leviticus 26 begins with this idea of the Lord and worship. Let me read verses 1 and 2 and highlight this 
still very applicable without translation, truth in verses 1 and 2. So Leviticus 26, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. Do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Verse 2. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So this opening, these opening verses talk about the Lord and worship, and there's these prohibitions, don't worship other gods, and really this idea of exclusive worship. God is reminding his people, worship me and worship me alone. And he says, I am the Lord. End of verse 1. I am the Lord. In other words, because he is the Lord, you cannot worship other gods. They're, they're false gods. In other words, God is not some good luck charm that you pull out when you need help. God is not the customer support at your beck and call. God is not a butler who just does your bidding. He's not a personal coach that gives you tips to hack through life. God is the God of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who rules and reigns over everyone and everything. He spoke everything into being. He have, never has not been, and he never will not be. And so as a result, he's the Lord, and you, you cannot worship other gods, he's saying here. And that is a helpful reminder, both for them thousands of years ago and for us today, that when you become a Christian, you say you want to follow God. Great. That means you don't follow other gods, and God wants all that you have, all that you are, all the time. Like There's this total devotion that God calls us towards, calls us for. In contrast, as one author wrote towards the close of the 20th century, in contrast to this total call that God has on our lives, some people just want about $3 worth of the gospel. Here's what he writes. Some people say this. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I, want to be, I, want, I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. There's that challenge right off the bat here in Leviticus 26. God calls you to worship him. Worship him alone with all that you are, with all that you have, all the time. But now we turn to the section. There's two sections here. You'll see it very clearly. Of blessings and then punishments, and we referenced this earlier. So verses 3 and following is this idea of peace and abundance, for God's people. And it begins with a very important verse here. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands. So there's this if statement here. Everything is contingent upon this. And if, God says to his people, if you do this, it will lead to peace and abundance. Listen to the text here. I will send you rain in season. The ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. So these general pictures of blessing, rain, crops, and fruit, but then in verse 5, it enters into what I call this continuous cycle of agricultural blessing, which for me as a non-farmer takes a little bit to get into, but see if you can hear it here. This cycle just keeps going on and it never stops. Listen, your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting. 
and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in the land. Did you hear it at the beginning? This continual cycle of agricultural blessing. You'll be threshing, but that will go until harvest. And then the harvest will continue until planting. As a modern person who's pretty separated from the agricultural cycle, I was thinking about like how, if you're a sports fan, we have this today. NFL season starts, and before that's over, the NBA starts. And before that's over, Major League Baseball starts. And before that's over, NFL starts again. There's a cycle of sports all the time. And there's that picture here. You're threshing, but that will continue until you have harvest, and harvest until planting, and you will have what we saw before, abundance. You will eat all the food that you want in safety. You will live in peace, or safety, rather, in your land. Verse 6 continues this idea of peace and safety. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. Now notice, again, foreign for me. There's peace both from other people, like humans that want to hurt you, but also from wild beasts. Like, that's a thing. Like, you're scared of not only people hurting you or destroying your life, but wild beasts. But God says if you obey, you'll have abundance, and you'll have peace, both from other people and from other beasts in the land. Now, it's important that we remember, this is a covenant between God and his people, Israel, not individual people. Why is that so important? Lest we turn this text into, if you have faith in God and follow him, you will be hashtag blessed, and you'll have health and wealth and pumpkin spice latte all the time. Like, I'm not sure that's what this text is saying here. We want to guard ourselves from health and wealth. Applying this too individually, I think the easiest reason we can deflate that pretty quickly is Jesus. Think about Jesus' words in John 16. Jesus says this, I have told you things, things so that in me you, have may, you may have peace. Okay, Jesus promises peace, but look at the context. In this world, you have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I mean, it's a trouble sandwich with peace on the outside, peace, I've overcome the world. But he's saying, you need to know this because in this world, you will have trouble. Like, if you follow me and you're faithful to me, it's not going to be health, wealth, and pumpkin spice latte all the time. There's going to be trouble. Jesus says it himself in his words. But also, not just Jesus' words kind of deflate this health and wealth paradigm. Jesus' life, or should I say death, as well. I mean, he followed the Father completely. And what did he get? He was betrayed by a friend, though innocent. He was executed in a horrible manner. So yes, this section here is about peace and abundance for God's people. But we ought not apply it too much in terms of our own lives because we have to see the larger picture of Scripture. In contrast, though, we enter verses 14 and following. And remember how this second section about peace and abundance began with an if statement? This also begins with an if statement and a rather quite different if statement. But if you will not listen to me, and carry out all these commands. And if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands, and so violate my covenant, and what follows, if you don't obey, basically, it's this cycle. It's this cycle that's repeated five times. If you sin, there's going to be judgment and opportunity to change your ways, but they don't change their ways. So this cycle happens again. Sin and judgment, opportunity to change ways, they don't change their ways. One, twice, thrice, four times, five times. And some of these judgments are pretty strong. Verse 16, disease and enemy invasion. 
Verse 18, a failed harvest. Verse 22, wild beasts attacking. Verse 25, plague and falling into the enemy's hands. And then the climax here, verse 29 and following, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols. And I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. There's a lot there, but it culminates in exile. God's people will be pushed out of their land and living in exile. Now, let's be honest, a lot of us might just bristle at this. We didn't even read it specifically, but even if you skimmed it, even if you heard some of the things that are here, you might bristle at that picture of God. Like he feels like a cruel taskmaster, that sure, if you're good, you get this, but if you're bad, if you don't obey, he's definitely going to destroy you. You might view him as the ultimate buzzkill, the ultimate killjoy, the ultimate Debbie Downer. This God is too harsh, too strict, too severe. You might view him as a cosmic, self-centered, maniacal, evil Santa Claus on steroids. So how would you respond to a friend who comes at you reading somehow Leviticus 26 and says this? What would you say to your friend? Bro, (laughs) calm down. But then what would you say? I think much more canon should be said about God's judgment. But I think part of our bristling at God's judgment that we see with great articulation and clarity here, part of our bristling at this, part of us feeling like, oh, God is so severe against sin, is due to our skewed judgment of sin. That is, we tend to underestimate the severity of sin, particularly our own sin, unless it's done against us. We tend to downplay, underestimate the severity, particularly of our own sin, unless it's done against us. For example, imagine you're late. And so you're in a rush. You've got to make it to work. You've got to make it to school. You've got to make it to that appointment. And so as a result of being late, you're very curt and rude with your family. You say things that you wouldn't have said otherwise. But it's okay. I mean, you're late. You've got to make this happen. You've got an appointment, important appointment coming up because you're an important person. And so as you're driving there, you're a very rude driver. You cut people off and they get mad. It's not even safe, but it's okay. I mean, you're late. It's okay. But if the tables are turned and, and someone else that's late, let's say your spouse or your friend or your child, and he or she is curt with you and rude to you and drives crazy and is rude and dangerous. Oh, it's so bad. You shouldn't do that. Unsafe, right? We tend to us underestimate and downplay our own sin And so perhaps that's one reason we bristle at how severe God is doing. Because this isn't against us. We're like, what's the big deal? Well, again, much more could be said about God's judgment. But perhaps we should just keep reading. Because there's a little bit of plot twist here that might help shade our understanding of this God that we might view as a maniacal um, Santa Claus on steroids that's mean. Verses 40 and 45. We read this earlier. We won't read all of it. But we see this plot twist about repentance and remembrance. Verses 40 to 42. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, 
Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the lamb. Let's just pause here. Notice in the text here, there still is an affirmation of the severity of sin. I mean, the language is pretty, pretty strong here. If they confess their sins, and he doesn't gloss over it in verse 40, you know, their unfaithfulness, their hostility, which made me hostile toward them, so I sent them into the land of their enemies, their uncircumcised heart. Like, it's still this affirmation of, like, this sin was pretty, pretty real and pretty heavy. But nonetheless, there's also this picture of, of grace here. Verse 40, if they confess this sin, verse 41, if their hearts are humbled, and then three times, verse 42, 44, and 45, the Lord will remember his covenant. And did you notice how this text ends? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Twice in this text, it ends the same way it began. Remember, in verses 1 and 2, the prohibition against uh, worshiping false gods? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And here in the text, at the very end of our section here, at the end of verse 45, at the end of verse 44, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. In other words, Yes, earlier, he is the Lord, yes, who calls you to worship him with all that you are, all that you have, all the time. But he's also gracious. Because look at verse 45. I am the Lord, verse 45, but for this sake I remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt. Remember what God says? I brought you out of Egypt. There's redemption here. I am the Lord, verses 1 and 2, that calls you to worship me with all that you have, but I'm also the Lord that gives redemption. I am the Lord. Do you remember earlier, um, we skimmed over this, but there's a section in verses 11 and 12 in which God says, if you obey me, I will walk with you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. There's this picture here of fellowship based on redemption. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And it echoes that picture that you see in Genesis, where God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and it's all, all it's cool. But just as reference in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God would fulfill that one day. He would walk among his people. He does this in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God fully God, fully human, and he walks among his people. But Jesus doesn't just walk among his people so that, wow, during those 30-some 30, 30 years, people could, like, walk with God again. Jesus' work on the cross made it possible that we can walk with God forever. You see, Jesus keeps the law perfectly, kept the law perfectly, but he didn't receive blessing. Why not? I mean, the picture you saw here was, if you, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. But Jesus kept the law perfectly, but he didn't receive blessing. Why? We find out in Galatians, in the New Testament, what's going on here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse from us, for it is written, curses everyone who's hung on the pole. You see, Jesus walks among us and provides the way that we can walk with God forever because despite the fact that he never sinned, he was cursed so that we could be redeemed. He took our sin upon himself, paid the penalty of our sins on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could have redemption. So Jesus takes our judgment upon himself. This judgment still happens. It just happened upon 
Jesus. And therefore, for those who put their trust in Christ, there's redemption here. So how do we draw this together? As we wrap up our series of the book of Leviticus, particularly this chapter, which maybe rubs us the wrong way, there are two, two ideas we need to wrestle with here. First, clearly the severity of sin. Again, we, we skimmed over this chapter. We didn't read every word, but even from the words that we read, hopefully you sense like, wow, God takes sin like super seriously. Like it's heavy. Not only that, do you remember that cycle that happens here? Despite God punishing his people and saying, come back to me, they, their hearts are so hard. So the, the severity of sin in terms of, wow, it just got this grip on people here. It's almost like they're the stubborn donkey and, and they kind of get whipped for going off the path. But they keep going off the path, and you're like, wow, how foolish. But the people are like that, and we're like that. Sin is, has this deceptive de- grip on our, on our own hearts. So we want to just have eyes to see that, but we don't want to end there. We also see, in contrast, the goodness of God. And God's not a killjoy. He's a giver of life. And indeed, remember how the chapter closes. When all seems lost, there's this beautiful lifeline. God says, I'm going to remember my covenant He's going to keep his side of the covenant even when the people don't. Here's what Wanathor says. God says that even though his people will utterly forsake him, God will still keep the covenant. He'll bring them back despite their sin. He'll change their hearts no matter how hard they are. He'll give them life no matter how close to death they come. Those of us who should have been cut off from God forever can be near him forever instead. And we saw that in Jesus. Jesus walks among us, dies a death that should have been ours. He was cursed that we wouldn't be cursed. He was cursed that we can be blessed in Christ forever. So Leviticus 26 opens our eyes to see that, that foreshadowing that's fulfilled in Jesus. So what should our response be? I think we see the power of repentance. Like if the people are, are convicted by their own sin, they, and they, they turn from their sin, they turn to God, it changes everything. It, and their hearts are softened. It brings them to repentance. That changes everything. I was taking notes on this, and I, I, I drew this, this chart, if you will, and I wrote, I'll read what I wrote because you can't read it. It says repentance changes everything. I'm just reflecting on the chapter, like that part where there's this punishment, it just keeps going down and down and down, the cycle of five down. It's like crazy. But then towards the end, there's this lifeline. If you repent, it changes everything. It's like that adage, you might be a, a million miles away from God, but it's only one step back. There's that beautiful picture here of what the power of repentance does. It's, it's in one sense, very simple. I just recognize my sin will never give me life. My sin has deceived me, deceived me with its promises. I turn from sin. I turn to Christ, and boom, life changes. So hopefully you see the power of repentance here, both with God, but also with others. I mean, we got drama relationally with people. Maybe you have drama with people around you. What would happen if you stepped out in faith and similar to your repentance from sin and turning to God, what if you repented of sins you've been committing against your spouse or your friends or your coworkers or your colleagues or your classmates? That changes things. That's so crazy in our world, right? So counterintuitive, so countercultural. But repentance is powerful. It changes everything. You see that in the text. You see that in the gospel. Hopefully you've seen that in your own life. What a perfect segue then as we move towards communion. Because in communion, it's very tangible of, of what God has done. He, he's given his son, his body broken, his blood spilt so that we can have life. He was cursed that we can be forgiven. He was cursed that we can be blessed.